Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week, we are talking to ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl about his new book, Betrayal, The Final Act of the Trump Show. from Mark Meadows, the president's former chief of staff, about a positive COVID test that the president had about a week before the final debate. He then tested negative several times right before the debate, but then tested positive a few days later. Mark Meadows, now trying to walk this back, reports that the president is furious. Uh, What are we supposed to make of this? Well, well, first of all, I have kind of a unique vantage point on this because I had heard precisely this uh, when I was doing the reporting for Betrayal, and it was one of the things that I spent uh, quite a bit of time trying to chase down. I had heard that there was an initial positive test, just as Meadows is now saying in his book, and one of the people that I asked about that was a guy named Mark Meadows, (laughs) Uh, and Meadows at the time told me, um, not true, not true, and I said to him, And I feel comfortable talking about this now that he has written a book. I said, okay, uh, can you tell me that on the record, like with your name attached, Mark Meadows tells me, you know, not true. Uh, And he said, well, let me get back to you. Let me get back to you. I got to see if it's okay. Let me just, he gave me the impression he was going to check with Trump. And believe it or not, he never um, got back to me. Uh, And then I also, when I sat down with Trump in Mar-a-Lago for the book in March, I asked him specifically, and if you look at the question, I mean, it's precisely as uh, as described by Meadows. I said, you know, I had heard p- people say that there is there was an initial positive test. I didn't say you had COVID during the debate. I said that there was an initial positive test before the debate. Is that true or is that not true? Is the way I actually asked. I wanted to really just kind of get a very specific answer from Trump. And listening to the audio now, which I have done for the first time since the interview of that part of you know of, of that section of the interview. He says, no, no, that's not true. But I swear when you listen to the tone of voice, he's obviously lying. I mean, he, like, he, gets, like, he gets a little quieter and he's like, he's kind of weighing it. And it's, um, but anyway, I, you know, um, the other thing Meadows writes in, in his book uh, is that Trump was displaying symptoms, that he was tired and seemed to have a slight cold. Uh, so you take that combination, that combined with the fact that there was this initial positive test. Now, they did go, and he says, retest the sample on a different machine. I, don't, I still don't know exactly what he means by that. Um, and it came back negative. Now, as you know, there are these tests are not perfect, but the more common mistake is a false negative, not a false positive. I mean, if the infection is there, it's there. Um, so you know, the height of recklessness. And, and one other thing on this, because um, I, I, again, as I said, I, I really looked rather deeply into this because um, I, I was convinced that they had violated the rules, uh, the debate rules. The debate, by the way, you know, was, was hosted by the Cleveland Clinic and I was there and uh, the protocols were very strict in terms of testing before you go in, in terms of a mask in the hall, all that stuff. Well, Jason Miller posted photographs um, that day, the day of the debate, 
of Johnny McEntee and Max Miller and various other luminaries, um, Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor. Trump advisors. Trump advisors with Trump on the stage doing the walkthrough as soon as they got to Cleveland. Uh, This is before the debate. You guys have all been part of this stuff. You know what it is. Um, And none of these guys are wearing masks. A total violation, which was outrageous at the time. But, I mean, not wearing masks when they knew that there was, uh, there had been a positive test of the guy. That I mean, it's, I don't know. It's unbelievable. Oh, it's believable. It's shocking and entirely believable. Back in the day when when uh, the late Charles Krauthammer was still with us, we would have that reaction to so much that was in the news regarding Trump, both during the campaign and then and then afterwards. And said so there has to be a word that means shocking but totally believable, or incredible but not at all incredible. Um, I, I want to jump to another episode that you cover. Uh, deeply in this book. And let me just, as, as an aside, recommend this book as highly as I can recommend the book. I loved the first book. Uh, you know, I think in the first book, it really came through that you knew Trump and had been covering him for a long time, which I think gave you a, a real advantage over people who were kind of just coming to Trump and trying to understand what he was and what the Trump phenomenon was. And uh, if that was true of the first book, I think it's even more true of, of this book and just phenomenal uh, reporting. The, um, you spend a, a, a chapter, you spend some time on uh, the famous Lafayette Square incident and give us really, I think, a, a terrific look at what was happening behind the scenes, particularly with Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, and Secretary of Defense, uh, Esper. Um, I'd, I'd love for you to talk just about what you learned that sort of advanced the story from what we knew as we saw it and, and learned in the days after that. But I want to focus in particular um, in light of what we were to see, in light of what we were to see uh, in the post-election period, and particularly with January 6th, about the concerns that Mark Esper had about Trump deploying active duty military on on American streets. And, and you report, uh, this is on page 50 of the book, you report at the end that Asper sort of went rogue and said he opposed uh, the Insurrection Act. He did not want the president to invoke the Insurrection Act, uh, even as he wanted to keep his job to try to keep things from really going off the rails. But you report that Asper said his goal was to keep the president from using the military against American citizens during the days, quote, the days before, the day of, and the days after the election. What, what were Esper's concerns? And um, did he anticipate that we would see the president object to the election results the way that he did? And, and what, what we saw in the days leading up to January 6th, was that the concern? Esper was concerned that, that, that Trump would do anything he could to, to hang on to power. Um, and, and I think clearly saw that, that there would be, that he would object. He wouldn't concede a, a loss, but more than that, that he would potentially take the next step um, and use the military in his efforts to, uh, to overturn election results. I think he was quite prescient um, on, on all of this. Um, but to go back to, June 1st and the walk across Lafayette Square. The, the, the significant thing there that, that I had learned, because we, we all saw those images and we were horrified by those images. And one of the things that was particularly 
bad about the images of the walk itself before we get to the actual hoisting of the Bible um, in front of St. John's Church is was that image of Mark Milley and his fatigues uh, and you know, and the, and, and, the, and the Secretary of Defense walking with him. And, and the image was, you know, I got my military brass here. And by the way, I got bar here and I got, I got all the, got, got all the big guns and, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to shut this thing down, you know, meaning the, 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 the riots, the protests. Um, and what's interesting is, first of all, I, I go into some detail about how, um, Esper and Millie were sandbagged on this. They, they, they truly didn't know what was going to be happening, which was not obvious at the time at all. It seemed like there were, I mean, there was a lot of criticism of both of them, obviously, particularly of, of, of Millie wearing those, those, those fatigues. Um, but what, what you learn is that the morning of June 1st, uh, there had been a very heated meeting in the Oval Office with Barr, Esper, and Millie all three of them adamantly opposing uh, the, uh, the Insurrection Act, uh, barred saying, look, I've got roughly 5,000 various law enforcement troops, you know, at my disposal at DOJ, we can, we can activate some of these people to, uh, you know, to, to deal with, uh, with combating the riots. Uh, and Esper and Milley saying it would be, you know, the National Guard is, is the force and active duty would, 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 be, a, would, be, a, would be wrong. Um, and it's not really resolved, uh, when, when the meeting, you know, breaks up and Esper goes about doing everything he can to keep Trump from pulling the trigger of invoking the Insurrection Act. And what he knows is as the, you know, civilian head of DOD, he can't defy a presidential order. Um, so he wants to prevent the presidential order from being issued. So he starts to deploy active duty troops to the Washington DC metro area, the 82nd Airborne, uh, and, 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 and other units, units from Kansas, units from Fort Drum, New York, uh, to the DC area, uh, and lets it be known that those troops are on their way and proceeds to get hammered in the press. Uh, you know, what is Esper doing bringing active duty troops to DC? Is he about to? And the hammering was was part of the design. Uh, he wanted Trump to see it. He had he wasn't he had no intention to actually bring them into the city of Washington. I mean, m- much many of them were were put out to um, Fort Belvoir uh, in in Virginia. Some were uh, were sent to Andrews Joint Joint Base Andrews in Maryland. They, they were not brought into the city, um, but he was as I describe it in the book. He was deploying troops not to quell a riot, but deploying troops to quell the dictatorial urgings of of the commander in chief. Um, And, and Esper knew that once he came out uh, after, after the walk, you know, uh, after the the mess in St. John's church, he came out publicly and opposed the insurrection act. You know, he knew that he was on a knife's edge of being fired. Um, But he, you know, and people say, and Sarah, you and I have had this conversation a lot, you know, you know, don't you resign in situations like this. He wanted to keep his job because he was really worried about what Trump would do. And by the way, Steve, it's more than just the deploying of active duty troops either to quell riots or to effectively go through with a coup d'etat and to overturn an election. He was also concerned that Trump would do dramatic efforts on the foreign, you know, 
you know, in terms of uh, the rest of the world, whether it be an invasion of Venezuela, I'm not kidding, uh, was was one of the things that Trump would would muse about and ask about, um, you know, an attack on Iran or a wholesale withdrawal of U.S. troops from Korea, Germany, uh, the Middle East, all this stuff. Um, it, it wasn't any coherence to it. It would just be something dramatic that would help him. And, you know, as, as somebody told me, uh, I, I don't name the official, but, but a very senior official at the Pentagon said, you know, that there would be time, Trump would often go from talking about total withdrawal to, you know, massive bombing in the same conversation. Just something to help him move the needle. I actually want to talk about the title of this book as well. So your first book was called Front Row at the Trump Show. And is literally where you sat in the White House briefing room, but it's also where I think readers got to sit uh, in that book. They were getting the front row view that you had through your eyes, going all the way back to when you first interviewed Trump through those first years in the White House. This book is called Betrayal. Very different. Uh, betrayal refers to an act. So what is the act of betrayal that you're referencing? So first of all, it was not my original title. Um, uh, early on I was, I mean, actually we, we actually announced a title, a working title called Aftermath, which I never really liked, but that was kind of like a placeholder. There was a time, uh, before January 6th where I hadn't actually started writing yet, but I was, but I, but I was preparing to write, uh, where I actually toyed maybe half seriously, but with the title, the biggest loser, um, because, you know, had a reality show, uh, evoked a reality show, but also Trump was losing everything. I mean, he, you know, all the legal cases, obviously the presidential election itself, uh, you know, uh, vetoing the, um, uh, defense bill and, and then getting overridden, you know, uh, massively by, by, you know, by Republicans, uh, he was, he was losing every step of the way. And it was, you know, for a guy that built his entire brand on winning, I thought that was kind of notable, but that went away once it realized this was a much this was a more serious thing. And, and, and I, I settled on the title Betrayal after I sat down with Trump in Mar-a-Lago. And the, the thing that struck me uh, about my conversation with him is that he was obsessed with the idea that everybody around him had betrayed him. Um, he, and mostly Republicans and people that worked for him and, uh, you know, m- much more so than Democrats or even the press. Um, he was filled with rage at Mitch McConnell, at, uh, Bill Barr, at Kevin McCarthy, when I, when I spoke to him and he felt that, uh, if people had truly fought for him, maybe as those who came to Washington on January 6th did, but if, if these people who had been his so-called allies, uh, had fought harder for him, uh, he would still be in the white house. Um, so that was part of it, but then, you know, the more direct reason is that I came to truly believe that he had betrayed the country. He had betrayed all of us. He had betrayed the democratic system that enabled him in the most improbable election victory of all time uh, in the United States uh, to become president of the United States. Uh, All of this, he had had been given this tremendous gift. um, And then he, and then he set out to betray that system. So so betrayal, there are many levels of it, and it became clear that it was really the only title. Um, this book was about betrayal. 
let me pick up on that. The um, you you did an interview with CNN and you were asked about sort of what it would mean or how how you would cover Trump if he runs again in 2024. Um, and you know, certainly he seems to be saying all the things you would expect if if he were to decide to run. And you said um, that it would be a huge challenge. I think in light of, and I'm, I, I'm putting words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong, in light of what we saw, in light of what you just described as a betrayal, in light of what we saw on January 6th, in light of what we've seen uh, in the time since, be an immense challenge because you're covering essentially an anti-democratic candidate. And it would require journalists to sort of look at him and what he represents and cover him and what he represents in maybe a fundamentally different way. What do you mean by that? Well, you, traditionally, we would cover a campaign by uh, you know looking at the uh, major candidates, doing stories on their platforms, interviewing them uh, during the primary phase. Phase, you know, having uh, you know primetime debates. Um, we would uh, the cables would would be carrying you know speeches from time to time in their entirety uh, live. Um, none of that is possible. I, I, at least I, I, it's hard for me to see how any of that is possible with Donald Trump in a, in a 2024 presidential campaign, because he is going to be using whatever platform he has to, uh, to perpetuate lies, um, relentlessly. I mean, this is what he does. He's focused, even if he runs, he'll be focused entirely on 2020. And, um, further, you know, the, the old, you know, the old saying, you know, if you repeat a lie often enough, uh, people believe it. Um, you've got a good chunk of the country that has come to believe this stuff. Um, it's not entirely because of how often he is and relentlessly he has lied about it, but that's, but that's a big part of it. Um, and he's, he's managed to to undermine this system already. And I, I, I just, I just, it wouldn't be, a, he's not a normal candidate. You, you can't do all that. I mean, I don't know, would, 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 would networks and, and fortunately I'm just a reporter, so I don't have to make decisions on this stuff, even at ABC, but could you, could you run a debate with Donald Trump on the stage? It's a real question. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. Cause we're also not, we don't live in a one-party state. I mean, what if the guy's the nominee? Um, Which I mean, Sarah and I have a bet that that about about whether he will be. I mean, I think there's there, if, if people are putting money on it, probably most people would bet that he would be the nominee. At this most point. people would wouldn't bet that. I so so I, I'm a little different on that. I, I would bet that first of all he won't run, and then if you give me some odds, Steve, um, I would also bet that if he runs, he would not get the Republican nomination. So I, I'm where you are. You can join my side of the bed against Sarah, and then she can take us both out to dinner. <laughs> you know what? I'll take it. Y'all are, uh, that'll be fun. Uh, I enjoy where the two of you can afford to take me to dinner. Um, <laughs> it, but so, John, I saw your answer to that question. And even now, I'm unsatisfied with it. I don't know what yeah. that well, means. Well, I'm not satisfied it's, with it either, Sarah. I mean, I, I don't have an answer, really. I mean, I just know that we can't do what we did in the past. But it's too high level. You're the reporter. You're going to be the one covering the campaign. 
What did you learn in 2015 covering the GOP primary that you would not do again or change or something more specific that I can like actually sink my teeth into? So um, let me speak from a broader perspective than my own actions during 2015, um, because I, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that I would do much different. Um, you know, I covered his campaign. I had many interviews with him. They were often very contentious interviews, um, and I, you know, I don't think that I, I don't think I gave him a. Um, a free ride in any sense of, of, of that phrase. But I think that the problem with the early coverage of Trump was twofold. One, news organizations um, typically, and you know this because you've worked for various candidates, uh, news organizations dedicate a, a, a significant, significant resources towards kind of vetting and investigating uh, potential high, you know, top level candidates for president. Um, we have, you know, we, we have big meetings, we have people assigned to doing nothing but looking into the background. We look into, you know, everything that we can find. And, um, sometimes that work never ends up making because the candidates fade away before they're major. But, but my sense is with, with Trump is that there was not significant investigative work done because nobody took him seriously as a candidate. It was like a bit of a, a sideshow. And even though there was much more, <laughs> there was a much more target-rich environment, you didn't see the kind of uh, investigative reporting that you saw, for instance, of Jeb Bush, um, uh, uh, particularly uh, Scott Walker. You know, you know, I mean, early on, you saw just go back and, and rewind the tape and see the pieces that were done, looking, you know, looking into various issues. Uh, Trump got that treatment, but it was after he was clear, far away. The 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 favorite for the Republican nomination. So that's one. Uh, the second thing is um, uh, the cable networks. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I mean, CNN particularly, I mean, how much time did they devote to just airing Trump's speeches? And, you know, I mean, I, I remember um, one of our mutual friends, Sarah, we complain about they're even showing that they're broadcasting the empty podium live saying coming soon, you know, soon Trump speech, you know, in Grand Rapids and there's the podium. Um, you know, the other candidates weren't being carried live and that's because they were boring. Let's be honest. And they were giving the same damn speech over and over again. And, you know, the, the last thing the world needed to do was to listen to another Ted Cruz speech. Um, but, um, you know, but, Trump was saying outrageous things and who the hell knew what was happening and the crowd was electric. And um, now CNN stopped that in actually even before Trump got the nomination. Um, but again, it was too late. And it's not just CNN. I'm not only to pick on CNN, but, but there was just a lot of uncritical, uh, unfiltered coverage because it seemed like a sideshow that wasn't necessarily serious, but it's kind of entertaining to watch. But how how do you think look looking forward to twenty twenty four? Let's assume he does run. I mean, one of the things you wrote about um, extensively in your first book was some criticism of of the the media for how they covered Trump, uh, not just giving him kind of endless time to to you know covering every speech and endless endless coverage, but also the tone of the coverage. Um, you know, you said, and I agreed strongly with you that there were lots of journalists who covered him as if they were the opposition. 
And that is how it felt. And, you know, I guess the, the question, and I don't know the answer to this too, uh, either. The question is, how do you cover him as an anti-democratic candidate who, I mean, it's, it's worth pausing. I'm not, I'm not sure we sort of at the risk of seeming dramatic and, and sensationalistic, what you just said sort of casually about Mark Esper deploying troops as a fake to the commander in chief to keep him from deploying troops for real to potentially execute a coup. Like th- these are holy shit moments. And I-, I think there were so many of them, particularly leading up to the election, in the days afterwards that sometimes we don't appreciate the gravity of them. And it's also the case that they'd been so many of the, the smaller things that Trump had done had been miscovered by the press broadly as, you know, potentially the end of America, the American experiment is ending because Trump said something, you know, in, in some interview, it made it harder, I think, for, for typical news consumers to distinguish between those things that were truly sort of republic threatening and the things that were kind of silly Trump things. So it, with, with that long background, how do you, how do you resolve that problem that you identified in your first book where you don't want to look like the opposition party, but if you cover him in anything as anything other than an anti-democratic actor who, you know, who is doing things that could lead to the end of the Republic, not to, not to be dramatic. How do you do that? How was the balance there? By the way, um, on the Esper point, uh, the other, one other thing I report in the book is that Mark Milley uh, and uh, uh, the vice chief of staff and the head of Cyber Command uh, had a briefing with one representative, off-the-record briefing with one representative from each of the five major networks uh, the weekend going into the election and uh, to, to, to say that um, to reassure them all that, that they would not allow the military to be used to, uh, to resolve uh, an election dispute, effectively saying, we're not going to be part of a coup. Right. Um, and the idea that the, the, Again, the top amazing. uniform yeah. leadership, you know, this is apart from Esper, Esper wasn't part of this. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I do think that, first of all, that was a major problem and, 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 and contributes to the situation we are in is this idea that the press became Trump's opposition just as he wanted them to be. Um, and by the way, you know, Steve, cause we've talked, I hate the media press. And I, so it's, right. I, I'm, I, I'm doing my, I'm committing my, yeah, a, a sin here by, by even doing this, but, but there was a, there was a, a, an overall tone to the coverage because he was doing outrageous things every single day. And it was very easy you know, and again, particularly so much of the perception of what the so-called press is or the media is, is, is what we see on cable television. It was a 24-7, holy shit, look what this guy did now. Can you believe this? Uh, tone to everything, every day. Uh, some days entirely deserved that, other days didn't. And the example I gave in Front Row at the Trump Show was when Trump had said incorrectly that uh, the hurricane was a Dorian was headed towards uh, Alabama. Alabama, yes. And and the and the you know the poor soul. Uh, he's probably at Gitmo now. Uh, the uh, the National Weather Service uh, for Alabama said no. Actually, the, 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 we're not in the path of the hurricane. And then Trump for the next week kept on refusing to acknowledge he had made a mistake. Now I was actually the first person on a network newscast to point out the mistake. I didn't make a big deal out of it, but I just noted it. It was a slow day. It was much less going on, so I put it in there. But then for the next five days, 
it was like you would think that we had invaded Iraq again. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I mean, it was just this relentless, oh my God, look, and he, and he put a, a Sharpie on the, on the weather service map. And, and there were people like really serious about this. Like, this is, you know, how can we trust what the government is putting out if he's going to lie about, I mean, and like, you know what? It was ridiculous what he was doing. Let's acknowledge that. Totally ridiculous. But did it warrant wall-to-wall coverage for a week? I mean, but he loved it because he was playing into it. And he was given more uh, ammunition every day uh, to, to fuel that coverage. And we all played along. And people maybe out, you know, watching from Toledo were saying, you know, what? what is, give the guy a break. Who cares where the hurricane was going? You know? And he was wrong. Okay, he made a mistake. Um, but now, fast forward, he's not lying about what direction the hurricane is going in. He's lying about the way our elections are conducted. Um, and, and there's a real track record in a sense that if you were to get elected, um, you know, he could maybe this time get it right uh, and, and, and truly, you know, undermine and maybe destroy our democracy. So, you know, we, we can't be the opposition party, but we also have to be opposed as reporters uh, to, to, to attempts to uh, deceive the public and to lie about anything, but especially something as fundamental about uh, as our elections. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. John, you and I have a few uh, long running conversations that have spanned years. One of them you have referenced already, which is, uh, the responsibility of those already in government service. You know, you obviously don't go into government service because you agree 100% with anyone. That's never been the case for anyone. But uh, should you go in? When do you leave? Your responsibility to quit? Or do you stay because the person who might replace you is worse? Uh, What your ego does to trick you in those situations? All of that. With that conversation in mind, what caused January 6th? Well, one key factor that has been underappreciated that caused January 6th is the idea that um, Trump was left at the end with nobody but sycophants around him. He, he, that there was nobody left that was truly willing uh, to, to, to challenge him, to question him, to talk him back from a ledge. Uh, uh, to, you know, to try to prevent him from, from, from doing what, what, what happened. Uh, I write in the book at some length about Johnny McEntee's role in all of this. He, he's not the, the sole factor, but I think he's a prime factor. 
Johnny McEntee, as both of you know, became the head of presidential personnel. Uh, normally, nobody knows who the hell the head of PPO is, unless you're somebody trying to get a job uh, in an administration. Um, you know, it's uh, the, but but you know, he 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 took over this office that was responsible for the hiring and firing of four thousand political appointees across the executive branch, including the very top appointees. You know, everybody below the rung of vice president goes through uh, PPO, and. Um, it's actually, a, it's an incredible story. Uh, and it's one that I had heard bits and pieces of while it was going on. But I, 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 the more I, as I was reporting for the book, the more I learned, the more astounded I was at the extent of it. You know, McEntee went about and was, and, and, and conducted interviews uh, with officials, top officials at all the agencies over the course of the summer of 2020 and into the fall. And these people were forced, and, and by the way, McEntee's staff, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he essentially fired everybody in PPO or almost everybody in PPO and, and, and filled it with, there's about 30 people that run that office. Uh, and he filled it with his friends. Uh, these were like his, some of his college buddies. These and how old is he? That, he was 29 at the time um, when, 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 he, when he got this job. And he had never, as Mick Mulvaney once mentioned to me, he had never actually hired anybody or fired anybody in his life before he took over the most powerful HR department, you know, in, in the U.S. government. Um, but here he was, and, and he filled it with his buddies. Uh, three of these people had never, that I know of, and there may have been more, had actually not graduated college yet. Um, a couple of them were Instagram influencers who he approached by DMing them on Instagram. Hey, you want to come work at the White House? Um, these were like the these were like the Red Guard, you know, and these were like Mao's Red Guard, uh, and, or as people at the White House they said, this this is our Stasi. Uh, some would say Gestapo. It was amazing the number of kind of like Nazi references, and I, I I tread very lightly on any of that, but it was like there were like a number of people who worked in that White House right to the end who um, who referred to uh, McEntee's little Gestapo operation. But they went out and they would they, they would go in pairs. These two, McAdee didn't do the interviews himself. He would send his two little people out, and they would sit down with you know the head of the uh, antitrust division at the Justice Department. So yeah, I mean these uh, are Senate confirmed assistant yeah. attorneys general. They had to re-interview for their jobs basically. And by twenty somethings who did not know what antitrust was. Yeah, um, yeah. and were asking questions that these very senior lawyers found. Uh, hilarious at times, at least. And they were and they were going through and they were going through uh, social media posts of 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 not just the the, the employees or the officials, but their families. Um, uh, you know, one in one case, an official his wife on on Facebook had posted a family portrait that had a Biden watermark on it. You know, it was right around the time of the election. It was like, oh my god, this is this is a fireable offense. Your wife just posted something with Biden's, you know, name. Um, there's the famous, you know, Taylor Swift, uh, like and Instagram, uh, people were questioned about their voting records. If it had been determined that they had voted in democratic primaries in previous years, uh, people, you know, I, what the, my, the most one I loved was the, the poor guy out at the uh, environmental protection agency that was asked, uh, do you support uh, withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan? And he's like, <laughs> uh, What's the right answer here? I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, um, 
But there was uh, one senior Justice Department official who was asked whether there were any more Sarah Isgers running around yes. the Justice Department. That was well, wonderful. and heaven help us if there were, you know. Um, <laughs> but but the point is to answer your question is it, is is there was a there was an effort to first of all literally fire people, and we saw in the case of the Pentagon where the entire top leadership of the Pentagon was decapitated right after the election um, and filled with you know people that were deemed McEntee loyalists. Uh, Trump loyalists, uh, but you know, but also if the people that stayed were kind of cowed into silence. Now there were some, so you know, like Pat Cipollone is an interesting character because he did a lot to facilitate stuff that Trump wanted to do. I mean, just go back to that whole, you know, the first impeachment and the way he, you know, uh, blocked and 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 proudly proclaimed he was blocking anybody within the executive branch from cooperating with uh, with the impeachment committee subpoenas be damned um but cipollone you know is 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 a guy that tried to keep thing keep everything on 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 the level uh even at the end but he was largely like in some cases blocked from meetings you know he's the white house counsel on january 4th there was a a very important meeting, um, the early evening of January 4th with Trump and Mike Pence, uh, John Eastman was in the meeting, Pence's counsel was in the meeting and it was Trump, you know, making his most direct and forceful push that you have to overturn the election on January 6th. And one thing that's notable to me is I, I, I talked to a few people that were at that meeting. I, I reconstruct it and describe it in some detail. Um, Pat Cipollone's not in that meeting. I mean, how do you have a meeting on something like that without the White House counsel? And the reason why he wasn't there is because he would have said what he thought, which is, you can't do this. So there were some people, but they were marginalized. Um, and the put really around Trump were only those like Mark Meadows willing to facilitate anything that he wanted to do. So, John, looking really specifically at January 6th, then, what do you make of the philosophical question of whether we want good people to stay in government, even in a Trump administration, or whether they had a responsibility to quit that day as January 6th was unfolding, as they saw what was happening? Where do you fall on that? I think that if I had been serving, have it helped me uh, in that administration, I would have resigned uh, immediately. But I will quickly add that, thank God, uh, some of those people did not resign. Um, and uh, the, he was still president for another two weeks. He still had the power of the presidency. And there were people who stayed on. And, I, and one of the ones I, I describe is a guy that most people have never heard of, Chris Liddell, uh, who was a, uh, a deputy chief of staff. He's just one. Uh, I'll put Tony Ornato, another deputy chief of staff, in the same category. And both of those two men, uh, in those in the over the course of the next two weeks, while Trump was still in power, quietly uh, helped facilitate the transition to the Biden administration, and you know, thank God they did. And there, and there are others, uh, you know, Jeffrey Rosen at the Justice Department. Thank God he stayed on um, and did what did what he was doing. Um, uh, so, you know, it's it's not an easy answer. Um, I think that the in, in some ways the easiest thing to have done is to say. I want no part of this. I'm resigning. But again, thank God, some of those people that were there and in a position to 
protect our country and serve our country state. All right, final question. And obviously with both of you on the podcast at once, we have to talk about wine, top wine recommendations for the holidays. John, what have you got for us? Uh, I'm going to say drink some Greek white wine. Uh, Get yourself some uh, Assertico from Santorini. Uh, And and while I stay on the Greek kick, um, some of the most underappreciated wines, I think, in the world right now are are wines from Crete, red wines from Crete. Um, So uh, that's, that's that's my recommendation. Wow, most people think red for the holidays. John Carl goes. I went right to white because it's so good. It's so good. It's so wow. good. I love a Certicos. <laughs> so uh, let me, yeah, let me let me just tell our, our listeners how smart Jonathan is in that recommendation. So I went to a, a restaurant, a fancier restaurant than I normally go to, called Range uh, here in DC, which I think is no longer in existence, but it's it was opened by. Um, Voltaggio brothers who won some iron chef award or I'm getting the, they won some, you know, chef contest. They were sort of celebrity chef types. I went there with my wife and another couple. We looked at the, the food prices on the menu and immediately decided that we were going to have to skimp on wine because the food was so expensive. So I asked the question, I asked this question a lot, um, of sommeliers in restaurants that have sommeliers. I said, tell me what the best value wine on your menu is like if you guys were going to have a sommelier party and you wanted to really impress people by bringing a wine that was awesome that they would be talking about but wasn't expensive which one would you bring on this menu and this this was one of these restaurants you know it had like a it looked like a phone book the old school white pages of of wine and he immediately flips it open to an assyrtico wine from santorini and it was $22 and it was phenomenal. Um, so that is the sommelier's choice when I asked the tough sommelier question. And it's the same answer you just gave. So that's, that, is, that is a fantastic suggestion, by the way. A great way to, to, to ask the sommelier and to be directed towards something good. I'll give you a corollary to that. It's, it's similar. If you're at a restaurant that uh, has clearly has a really good wine list. You can tell it's been carefully selected and it's got a lot of wines that you can't afford. Um, as a result, go and look at the wines from the more obscure regions because if this is a really smart sommelier, they're not putting stuff on their list willy-nilly. And, and, and if they're putting a wine um, you know, from Basilicata in Italy in there, it's because they found something really cool from Basilicata. And, uh, and because nobody is thinking about Basilicata wines, you know, chances are it's going to be a lot less expensive. Uh, used to be that way of Sicily. Unfortunately, Sicilian wines have caught on and become more expensive. And unfortunately, people are starting to discover our Assertico, which is, you know, which means we're going to have to go to Robolo from Cephalonia uh, in the Ionian Sea, uh, which has got some, which is another, you know, it's kind of the, they, they call it the Assertico of Cephalonia. Anyway, we, we, we've gotten to too much we can keep going another podcast (laughs) (laughs) we will actually bring some wines have you back i like that and do a wine only podcast i keep threatening to do it at some point i'm just going to do it let's do it it's true it's true all right john carl author of betrayal the final act of the trump show you can get it anywhere fine books are sold thanks john thank you guys great talking to you 